This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code SEX, S-E-X, at checkout to get 10% off your purchase. This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each episode, we ask a single question. Then we look to experts and listeners like you for the answers. This episode contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, what is sexomnia and why is it so dangerous? It happened in the dark. It always did. Around three years ago, I started having dreams about a strange woman. You could say we had a physical connection. Anytime this woman and I were in the same place, things instantly got hot and heavy, without words or so much as a glance exchanged. But these weren't just ordinary dreams. These dreams seeped into reality. I soon realized this strange woman was actually my girlfriend lying next to me in bed. The feeling is that of a bizarre wet dream that blends with reality just enough to make it real, but not enough to abandon the surreal, like something out of a Murakami novel. My girlfriend, to whom I'm now married, began affectionately referring to my nocturnal advances as the midnight sex pest, even though it typically happened around 1 a.m. But these encounters also go by another name gaining in popularity, sexomnia. That was Stephen Klink, reading the Motherboard article he wrote that inspired this episode. Sexomnia is a condition that causes people to engage in sexual activities while they're asleep. These activities can range from pelvic thrusting, to masturbation, to sexual intercourse. You may be thinking sexomnia sounds like the result of repressed sexual desires, but it's not a psychiatric condition. It's a rare form of parasomnia, which is a disorder which causes abnormal or unusual behavior of the nervous system during sleep. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Michelle Kramer-Bornman, who's the lead investigator at Sleep Forensic Associates in St. Paul, Minnesota. He's going to tell us more about the causes and treatments for sexomnia, as well as the risks involved. But first, let's hear more from Stephen. Stephen, tell us about your sleep patterns. How have they evolved over time? So growing up, I had a lot of issues with my sleep. Even as a kid, I slept walked from a very early age. I have stories from me sleepwalking when I was away at summer camp. Some really interesting things happen, you know, walking out of the cabin that I was in, sleepwalking over to a different cabin, pushing some kid out of his bed in that cabin that was in the same identical placement as the one that I was sleeping in. So you can imagine, as a kid dealing with that sort of thing, it's very disorienting and kind of very distressing when you wake up in the middle of something like that and have no idea where you are, how you got there, what's going on. So do you remember the first episode you had of Sexomnia and what happened or when it was? As far as my first episode of Sexomnia goes, it's hard to really pinpoint exactly when the first one was. I definitely remember the very bizarre feeling that I got from it, which was it sort of has the feeling of a virtual reality experience that is also simultaneously real at the same time. A very blurred experience. But I think when it came to sexomnia, 
my wife and I, she's now my wife before she was my girlfriend when we were first experiencing this, we sort of would kind of wake up either after things had actually happened or we'd realize the next morning that something had happened and, and, and kind of laughed about it and been like, so do you remember what, what ended up happening last night? We kind of took it in stride and it actually was a pleasant surprise and a pleasant experience, which I later found was not the case for a lot of people. So Stephen transitioned from sleepwalking to saxomnia, so I'm curious if there's a connection there. His experiences with saxomnia seem so disorienting. I really want to understand why this happens. For those answers, we need to hear from Dr. Kramer Bornman. So the the general definition of parasomnia Uh, is that um, a parasomnia is an undesirable physical event or experience that occurs during entry into sleep, within sleep, or during arousals from sleep. And parasomnias encompass abnormal sleep-related complex movements, behaviors, emotions, perceptions, and dreams. Parasomnias can be divided into two categories non-REM and REM disorders. Those that happen during the non-REM phase are sleep terrors, sleepwalking, sexomnia, and sleep-related eating disorders. A common REM disorder that you might be familiar with is nightmare disorder. So for the longest time, using the strong Freudian understanding, these behaviors were understood in this kind of psychiatric, mental health kind of perspective. But uh, REM sleep behavior disorder is now really understood as a neurologic condition, which really we can now understand as one that is neurologic and not psychiatric. All right. I think it's important to repeat the fact that parasomnia, including sexomnia, is the result of a neurological issue, not a psychiatric one. Freudian psychoanalysis gets it wrong again. Dr. Kramer Bornman explained that in the Canadian Sleep Center, 800 patients were surveyed. And 7% were found to have symptoms that are suggestive of sexomnia. He also told us more about what's going on inside the brain when sexomnia occurs. If you think about the brain, is that in sleep, the brain cycles between non-REM and REM. And it goes through these cycles approximately four to six times per night. But if you look at it microscopically, the brain is comprised of about 80 to 100 billion neurons or electrical connections. And so the brain has to make these switches repeatedly and in doing so in a fluid process. But ultimately, it is a neurochemical electrical unit. And it wouldn't be far-fetched to think that switching errors can occur. I think I understand what's going on when a sexomnia episode is triggered, but Stephen broke it down even further. What's happening when you experience the sex omni episode is that you're being abruptly awakened from a deep sleep. Deep in your brain is what's called a central pattern generator. And so this central pattern generator is sort of looping uh, electrical current. And this area of your brain controls primal stuff like fight or flight response, eating, And then also uh, sex, because when it comes to sex, 
survival depends on procreation. So this central pattern generator, oddly enough, happens to be located very close to the part of your brain that controls your sleep-wake function. So what happens is when you get abruptly awakened from this deep sleep, this electrical signal that's supposed to be controlling your sleep-wake function makes a wrong turn and ends up affecting the central pattern generator. So that's sort of where scientifically, electronically, uh, the, the hardwiring in your brain isn't quite as hardwired as you would think. And so when that electrical signal switching error happens, that's when you get a sexomnia episode. It's also something that could potentially explain other strange stuff that people do in their sleep. You sometimes hear about someone eating in their sleep or someone kicking and punching in their sleep. Those types of things are all related. The, the, the popular media and the, the perception is that this is sexual intercourse, but often it's not sexual intercourse. These behaviors can range anywhere from profane sexual vocalizations to fondling or inappropriate touch or unwanted touch, masturbation, uh, sexual intercourse, and sometimes it can result uh, in sexual intercourse to climax. And then if we look at the difference in these behaviors from a gender perspective, um, the females are almost exclusively engaged in self-stimulatory behavior and sexual vocalization, and males are more apt to engage in inappropriate touch or fondling and actual sexual intercourse. And what's important to note is that the behavior when these individuals uh, are involved in these is unlike their wakeful self. So, people who suffer from sexomnia are not acting out because they have repressed fantasies or deviant thoughts. But as you can imagine, this disorder has the potential to affect those who share a bed with someone who suffers from the condition. Coming up after the break, we'll learn more about the effects of sexomnia and explore how this disorder is treated in the courtroom. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know that we enjoy sharing website ideas with you. This week, we pulled our newsroom to find out what websites our colleagues wish existed. Here's what we've got. I, I really love gifts, so maybe more gifts, like more Black Girl Magic gifts. I need that website, where it's just like a treasure trove of Black women being magical. There's not a good American soccer news website. Uh, I have to kind of go all around for my soccer news from overseas, from the States, South America, Spain, Germany, everywhere. TheRealFootball.com There should be a website where you can rent boyfriends for weddings or family gatherings. That's called escorts. Food with like F-U-D with an umlaut, you know, just food, like chic and foreign. A website where you just type in whatever food you want and then it makes it for you. 3D print it in food Ooh, out of my you computer. You don't have to deal with a human. Yeah, never. No. Please. In 2016, I should never have to deal with humans. You know which one I would love to see is food.com. I mean, I think every single time we do a podcast now, I talk about how much I love food. And 
Also, the idea, I kind of love and hate 3D printers. So I think they're sort of useless as they are now. Like, you just use them to make trinkets and things. Right. But if you could actually use a 3D printer to make food, like, I'm all about that. Right. Well, and I think the person that came up with this idea, their emphasis was that there was no human interaction necessary, meaning, like, (laughs) nobody ever touched the food. Right. So I don't know. Maybe that's something some people need or are into. I'm ready for it. Thinking of an idea for a Squarespace website might actually be harder than making one. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level, and there's no coding required. Plus, they have intuitive and easy-to-use tools. And you can get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SEX to get 10% off your first purchase. That's offer code SEX, S-E-X. Beyond the general study of sleep, Dr. Kramer Bornman and his associates at Sleep Forensics have also taken on over 300 cases that involve sleep disorders, a little less than half of which involved sexual assault. These cases have been both clinical and forensic. I'll let the doctor explain the differences. The cases that I get from a clinical perspective um, often um, involve a woman. And uh, in these situations, it's usually a young couple Um, typically married within the past few years. They may or may not have a young child. And and the wife uh, is involved in uh, self-stimulatory behavior. And the husband notices it and may or may not wake the wife up and bring it to her attention. At any rate, he'll bring it up to the attention the following morning and tell the wife, you know, by the way, I noticed that uh, you're touching yourself at night and and it causes a significant degree of marital discord because the husband believes uh, that perhaps uh, he's not uh, fulfilling her desires. And uh, the wife is often caught completely unaware, stating that, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. And the husband's typically aghast. In this culture, it often just requires education. Um, and then the husband can start to kind of move on and realize that it has no reflection on him or the status of their relationship. And often the medication can be very uh, helpful in at least reducing the frequency, if not completely removing it at all. Now compare this to another clinical case that I had, actually my colleague had, uh, of uh, a Taiwanese couple uh, were recently married. The, the wife was engaging in the same kind of masturbatory behavior a few times each month. Again, she had no memory or awareness, had no dream, and she stated that she was otherwise uh, sexually fulfilled. Uh, but this was a great source uh, of marital discord. Um, the husband was feeling a significant amount of guilt and remorse, as she was, and despite uh, the discussions uh, with this couple about uh, the science and clinical uh, merit uh, to explain this, uh, he was convinced that this was a sign of mental illness and that uh, in his culture, this was indicative of a constitutional flaw and that he started questioning whether he should have married her. And, and despite uh, our strong insistence that this was a manifestation of um, a neurologic condition that had no Uh, connection to mental illness, he couldn't get over this. And they eventually divorced. 
there's so much going on with sexomnia in these cases that it's even really hard to know where to begin to talk about it. But I think the one thing that we probably can agree on is that if there is sexomnia happening in a relationship between two people or more than two people, I guess, um, there has to be a lot of communication going on because otherwise it seems like the relationship is doomed. You have to address it. You have to get the help you need and, and call it for what it is. Right. Um, I also think it's really interesting that in women, sexomnia seems to manifest in masturbation, whereas in men, it seems to manifest in intercourse or like this pelvic thrusting. And it also sort of throws me for a loop because I'm not sure like wh- why there would be so much marital discord around a man waking up and finding his wife sleep masturbating. Like people have sex dreams, people touch themselves in their sleep, like even adult men have wet dreams on occasion. Like I just, I guess... I don't know. I guess that it just seems like such a gendered thing to me. I think maybe it has to do with the husband, one, just being confused or freaked out by what's happening. But two, it might be his ego is bruised. You know, he's worried that his partner would rather get herself off, possibly because he thinks he's not doing it right or he's assigning some kind of blame to himself. And maybe that's why it's upsetting to him. Now, the issue is that these become forensic issues when you have the wrong individuals sharing the the, the the same proximity of sleep for where perhaps maybe they shouldn't, uh, especially in those that are prone to these kind of behaviors. Dr. Kramer Borneman has developed a profile of these cases based on a pretty consistent pattern. Cases often involve a divorced couple with a lower socioeconomic status who are sharing custody of young children. The father is typically between 25 and 45 years old, and the victim is almost always female and between 5 and 12 years old. Because of their socioeconomic status, when the father has custody of the children, he's often sharing his bed with one or more of the children, most often his daughter, perhaps because the boys are sleeping on the floor or couch or sharing a bed. This is when an episode of sexomnia can occur. It's important to note that these instances don't generally involve actual intercourse, but they do involve inappropriate touching dry humping, or thrusting. And the episodes usually last between 10 and 30 seconds. So the father and daughter are sharing a bed, and she wakes up to find her father touching her inappropriately. The child responds by trying to push him off, and this action usually wakes up the father, who is shocked and disgusted when he realizes what has happened, perhaps even vomiting in response. When the daughter goes home to her mother and confides the details of the incident, the mother comes to what seems like the only conclusion that the father is a sexual predator, and she reports it to the police. Because sexomnia is so misunderstood and so unknown to the general public, this disorder doesn't even register as a possibility. The incident is then defined as a criminal case, and in some instances, like in Texas, there's a mandatory 25-year sentence for molestation of someone under the age of 14. Obviously, this is horrifying when it occurs between a minor and an adult, But it's also very difficult to think of it happening between two adults. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in both of these positions, waking up and being in the midst of assaulting someone, but also being assaulted by someone who was technically sleeping. I mean, as a victim, the fact that they weren't conscious isn't going to change your experience. It's not going to change that trauma. Totally. But it seems like a nightmare for everyone involved because, according to the research, the person who's experiencing the sexomnia isn't aware of what they're doing either. So in many ways, they're just as helpless as the victim. But like you said, that doesn't change what's happening. 
One person Dr. Kramer Bornman has worked with on a forensic case is Ryan Youngren. Ryan is a prosecutor with the Cass County State's Attorney's Office in Fargo, North Dakota. So I had a case uh, from late November of 2008 where a 13-year-old girl reported to her mother and then to social services, ultimately to police, that the mother's 48-year-old live-in boyfriend had come down to her bedroom um, in the uh, bottom floor of a split-level home in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m., that he had come down to her room, um, had started massaging her back. She was laying in bed on her tummy, uh, fully dressed, and he start, she thought, of course, it was odd that he would come down in the middle of the night and start massaging her back. Um, she asked him what he was doing. He said that he does this all the time to help his own daughter fall asleep, who was not at the home at the time. And then he started putting his hands down under her underwear, um, started massaging under her bra and around her breast area, um, and uh, began molesting her. Um, she then stopped the event by saying she had to get up and go get a drink of water. She left the room and then did not go back to her own bedroom, but went back to her brother's bedroom um, and slept the night in her brother's bedroom to get away from him. So obviously that's a very disturbing case. How did sexomnia come into play? It actually came in play not initially. Um, As the case was investigated, uh, it was reported to our Child Advocacy Center and then to the West Fargo Police Department. They went out and interviewed the individual, and he was uh, um, confronted as well by uh, family members. And initially, uh, his reports to uh, the victim's mother and to others uh, did not relate to any sort of a sleepwalking uh, defense. What he had initially said was, it was a, must have been a combination of my drinking and me being tired. Um, then at some point during one of the conversations that he's having with the victim's mother, um, he starts telling her, well, you know, I'm a bad sleepwalker, uh, which was indeed the case. Uh, we had proof that he was a bad sleepwalker. He'd actually sought treatment for sleepwalking previously. Um, so when that was raised was not initially when he was being questioned, but later on, um, then as time progressed, she let him back in the house She actually uh, initially uh, was very angry with him, the mother, um, and would not um, um, uh, allow him back in the house. But then at some point she kind of turned tables on us and on him, or or on her her daughter, rather, and let him back in the house to live. Um, Then um, um, he started to say, well, it must have been my sleepwalking. That's the only thing I can figure. Um, And then the defense was kind of uh, spawned from that. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, sleepwalking is a form of parasomnia, and people who suffer from sleepwalking as a child are more prone to experiencing other parasomnias, like sexomnia, as an adult. However, we learned from Dr. Kramer Borneman that it's very rare for sexomnia to go beyond the bedroom. So based on what we've learned so far, this doesn't seem like a sexomnia case. Thankfully, Ryan had Dr. Kramer Borneman as a star witness, and he was able to explain the discrepancies. He had essentially three points. And he said, first of all, um, it's unclear that Mr. that the defendant in this case, his behavior arose from sleep. There wasn't any witnesses that had seen him falling asleep that night. There were witnesses. Uh, the victim's mother had gone to bed early that night, so he was at the couch drinking beer, watching TV. Um, and he initially 
said that it was a combination of beers and him being tired. So right off the bat, when as we have to do with uh, the devils in the details, um, look at intoxication. Was intoxication a possibility? And it was. Dr. Kramer Borneman said uh, intoxication or impaired judgment is possible. Um, you know, the shorthand being that, uh, um, you know, some folks get themselves into situations when they've been drinking that they otherwise wouldn't. That is not a defense. <clears throat> intoxication is not a defense, um, legally speaking, in a case like this. Um, and that that we couldn't uh, we couldn't rule out. So initially, right off the gate, there's number one. Number two was that he said in his studies and in his review and in his research, typically, uh, commonly, uh, sex somnia cases, the victims and the defendants are in close proximity to each other, that they don't seek their victims out. So he said the behavior of him walking from the couch down a flight of stairs, this was a split-level house, and then seeking the victim out uh, downstairs is not consistent with sexomnia. Uh, that sexomnia behaviors um, are typically the sleepwalking or the sleep-type behavior where victims are in close proximity. Uh, Goal-orientated, he had testified to and gave us in his report, um, behaviors or multiple steps um, involving communication is not consistent with Sexomnia. So, as I'd mentioned to you before, when um, the defendant had then had the conversation with the victim, saying, as she said, what are you doing? And he responded, I'm rubbing your back. This is what I do for my daughter to get her to fall asleep, is not consistent with someone being out um, and uh, in, in their sleeping patterns or in their sleeping behaviors. Um, I'll say before, so that was his second point. Before I move on to the third point, that we did have some information that he was a sleepwalker. And so then I was able to use that at trial and talk to, he actually had a sleep doctor that he had seen, um, and also to his girlfriend at the time and say, um, what behaviors in comparison uh, does he exhibit when he's sleepwalking? And she talked about some stuff where, you know, this sexomnia behavior where they would be in bed together and he would start initiating sexual advances uh, at odd hours of the night or after he'd been drinking, um, and they seemed to be very primal behaviors. She also talked about him waking up one night uh, and urinating in a, a boot in a closet, um, and they were at a hotel or something where it was the, the environs were unfamiliar to him. That is also a, a key uh, that, that Dr. Kramer Borneman talked about, is unfamiliar environments um, as, uh, as being important, where this was a very familiar environment to the defendant. Uh, so all of those uh, were somewhat opposed to the behaviors that he was claiming happened here. The third was that his reaction after the fact, you know, sometimes we can take a, so how did the person react? You know, if you look at the, uh, you know, a, a very crude example would be the O.J. Simpson car chase, right? The Bronco chase down the interstate. So what does that say? Um, in North Dakota, we can use flight if someone's running from a crime as a uh, some evidence of guilt, okay? So in this situation, Dr. Borneman said his research um, and his review of cases will show that people that have actually been involved in sexomnia incidents, when they become conscious, when they become awakened and aware to what they're doing, they respond in a very uh, visceral way, um, perplexed or in horror of what they have just done, very apologetic. That was not at all how my defendant reacted. He initially 
uh, stated that it didn't happen, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Then sometime later he came up with, well, you know, I'm a sleepwalker, um, and it must have been the sleepwalking. Um, and then that was uh, the catalyst, or that allowed him back into the house so that the um, girlfriend actually allowed him to live with them together and then she became suspect of the victim's report based on him being a previous sleepwalker so there's much more of a you know a, a goal-orientated structured response here that Dr. Borneman said is not um, how sexomnia defendants will react. The defendant was sentenced to seven years in the Department of Corrections. Ryan told us that he was afraid that the case would set a precedent within his community and inspire other perpetrators to use sexomnia as an explanation for molestation and sexual assault. Since that case, he said a couple of people have attempted to use sexomnia as a defense, but it hasn't held up. Which makes me wonder what Stephen, who told us about his own experience with sexomnia at the top of the episode, is doing to make sure he doesn't pose a risk to those around him. For many people, one of the biggest concerns or one of the biggest issues or risks is that there have been people who have molested their their own children Yes, because of it. Has that, knowing that knowledge, has that changed the way that you've thought about having a family for yourself or the way that you think about about a family? Yeah, uh, no, that, that aspect of sexomnia and having to be very careful around your children. I don't have any children yet, but... When I do, if I do, I am definitely going to have to be extremely careful about not falling asleep in the same bed with them. And it's a hard reality to face because that's a very natural part of being a parent. But I think if you know that you have this issue that you're dealing with, you have to be very proactive in in making sure that you're taking the right steps to keep something tragic like that from happening. As far as treatment goes, I am doing a lot of things that I would describe less as treatment and more as lifestyle changes. So coming out of the sleep study, my doctor prescribed clonopin, and clonopin is a benzodiazepine. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but go with me. Uh, It's a benzodiazepine, and... Basically, what it does is it's a sedative. It's also an anti-anxiety medication. So what you're doing when you're taking it is it's really putting you in a much more sedated state. So when you're sleeping, those little things that you might hear that might disturb your sleep, that might abruptly awaken you from your sleep and trigger one of these episodes, you are going to be much more resistant to that because you're much more sedated. So that's how the thinking goes as far as that treatment goes. For me, I've taken a number of sleep aids. And as far as prescription sleep aids go, I've never been happy with the outcome. So that's why I avoided taking clonopin altogether, even though my doctor prescribed it. So a combination, kind of a three-pronged approach, the uh, sort of a trident of of managing sexomnia for me has been making sure I'm getting enough sleep on a regular basis, making sure if I am going to have a drink and I am going to, you know, have a couple of cocktails or some beers that I'm doing it in more of a social setting rather than coming home every night and having a couple of drinks. 
And then when it comes to managing stress, it's really hard, especially in New York. Um, you know, the 60-hour work week has become the new 40-hour work week. Everyone's working way harder, I'm sure, across the country as well. A lot of people are overstretched and overscheduled. So when it comes to managing stress, it's hard to do as much about that. But at the same time, as you can implement meditation, if you can try to exercise on a regular basis, those things really help. At this point, learning how to manage everything that triggers it, I've been able to lower the episodes I've had um, to being able to count, you know, how many episodes I've had within the past year and four months on, on one hand, which is a lot lower from when it was happening in its highest frequency. So there's that, which, you know, I think is, has been a positive change overall. That's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. A special thanks to our guests, Stephen Klink, Dr. Kramer Borneman, and Ryan Youngren. And thanks to our producer, Caitlin Buguki, and our editor, Nick Offenberg. Please take some time to find Love and Sex on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And make sure to leave a review and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. You can also send us an email with questions, comments, or concerns at loveandsexpodcast.huffingtonpost.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.